Welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. This is Matt Zapala, your host and creator of Euphoria Health and Active Living, your go-to hub for all information on movement, sustainability, and plant-based nutrition. My main goal is to generate happiness, and I couldn't think of a more fitting word to represent my brand than Euphoria. Join me as I dive into raw conversation with qualified professionals, athletes, influential individuals, and many more. It's time now to introduce this week's special guest. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night to you all, wherever you're listening in the world, whatever time zone you're in. Firstly, I'd like to thank you all for your amazing support for the podcast. It's so warming to see listeners from all around the world loving the message I'm trying to spread and the guests that I'm bringing onto the show. I try my best to respond to all the warming messages through Instagram and love connecting with new people and helping you guys on your journey. So if you have any questions, comments, or just want to have a chat, direct message the Euphoria page. I'd love to connect. In saying that, if you're listening to the podcast, take a screenshot and upload it to your Instagram story. I'd love to see where everybody's listening from and how the podcast is making a positive impact on your life. I'm absolutely stoked this week to have Simon Lovett on the podcast. Now, some of you may recognize Simon from the Australian TV series of Gogglebox, which he stars in. However, that's not the reason he's on the show today. Simon's also a qualified physiotherapist with a wealth of knowledge and I had the opportunity to pick his brain and dive deep into three of the more common injuries he treats as a physio. The injuries we dove into today were any ACL injuries or rolled ankles so for any athletes out there definitely give this one a listen and we also dove into kyphosis or rounding of the shoulders which is a more common injury we see for people that work office jobs hunched over all the time looking at a computer screen. Simon shares with us how he would treat their injury from diagnosis to return to training and any strengthening exercises to prevent these injuries from ever occurring. Simon's such a down-to-earth cool dude and he places a huge emphasis on educating himself further so he can adapt his treatment plan accordingly. So grab yourself a notepad and pen because you'll definitely need it during this episode. Simon, thanks so much for making time today, mate. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Excellent to have you on the show. Just to paint the picture of how me and Simon met, uh, not long ago, maybe three or four months, I had surgery, as you guys all know, removing the loose skin from the bottom of my stomach. And I had a buildup of muscle tissue just down into my lower abdomen, and I was searching around for all these places to do some ultrasound therapy. I was a bit skeptical about it, and I believe, Simon, you were too, having not yeah. having done it before. Anyway, we went, went through with it, got some ultrasound therapy and we developed an awesome connection and started picking each other's brain and challenging each other to think differently about different things. I noticed that Simon is a wealth of knowledge and he has an awesome story to share. Today we're going to dive into some of the most common injuries Simon sees as a physiotherapist and how he treats it from diagnosis to return to training. But before we kick off, Simon, tell us what life was like for you growing up. Uh, I mean, it was pretty pretty simple. I mean, I'm, I'm not a super complicated guy. And the challenging things, if you're going to look for a challenge, is that there's not many challenges. So, And that's what it was. It was just like a local suburban kid. I just went to school around the corner from where you actually work um, and grew up in that neighbourhood. I actually played football around the corner from there, cricket, uh, lacrosse, which is what I play now. So that was kind of the sporting history, basketball, any kind of... Aussie kids 
keep childhood, it Childhood, really? Yeah, yeah, that was it. It was kind of always out riding bikes. All my mates lived close by, which was good. Yep. So you always kind of, before phones, it was a bit of, right, where are the boys? And you just ride around to everyone's house and wherever <laughs> all the bikes are, that's how you find out where everyone is. And then you dream. just walk in and you're like, how you going, Mrs. Gordon? How you going? Right. And then you just say hello and away you go. There you go. That is a dream. Gone are the days of those now, mate. Everyone's Absolutely. always on these devices. You touched on the sports you played growing up. What sort of developed your passion for sport? Uh, I think just being outside all the time. I think all of my mates, we were all really sporty. Yep. Um, so it was just a way to connect with, with those guys. Excellent. Um, we were always running around, always bikes. And I mean, I'm, I'm 31, so I'm of the age probably just before really technology fully hit. Like we had video games, but it was more like, all right, I'll play this for a little while and then go outside, trampolines no real rules. Your parents are like, right, go until the, the street lights come on and then you can come back and go out again. So Excellent. it was just like, everyone was really active. So you just had to stay involved. You, you would play sport, so. Great, and did you have any ambitions or anything to make a higher level of sport, play representative or something like that? Yeah, so football-wise, um, I was going pretty well until I had some foot issues. So it just kind of stopped that. And then my, my dad always played lacrosse when he was younger. Um, so I was playing that since I was about 10 years old. So all through teenage years, I was playing rep lacrosse. So it was kind of representative teams, under 15, under 17 Victorian teams, under 19 Victorian teams. And then moving forward, it was always a bit of a dream to play for Victoria and then Australia for senior teams, but never really got there. I tended to self-sabotage that a little bit by going on extended holidays on the years that counted. So <laughs> it made it a little bit challenging, but... That's a problem when you're, when you're that committed into a sport. It sort of takes over your life, Absolutely, it? and I probably wasn't willing to sacrifice as much as what needed to be to get to those high levels. Yep. Um, but that's okay. I'm, I'm pretty happy with where we're at now. So I play in the state league, which is like the top division for, for lacrosse with my club. So it's a pretty, pretty good standard, and our club's really going places. So Excellent. kind of had to come to terms with the rep career going by the wayside, but that's all right. Awesome. You mentioned before that you were you had a little bit of a stint with injuries. Do you think that that was there enough knowledge back then to to help you rehab those injuries to get back to get you back playing quicker? Yeah, I think it was like when I was younger, there was a lot of sports, so there was just the infrequent injuries that you usually get ankles and elbows and whatever it may be. Um, and I was self aware enough to know that hey, I wasn't going to make the AFL or the Australian cricket team. Um, lacrosse was always a passion, so we could go that way but I knew that that wasn't like a pro league or anything like that so if I wanted to be involved in that really high level sport it'd have to be through a different a different avenue um, and I was always really interested with just what would happen at the physio not that I knew anything that was going on um, they just come in give you some exercises and tell me to rest which I never would do <laughs> and then which probably it's a bit of karma now but uh, yeah so then then that'd be it just exposure to physio I was like right this will be my ticket into into that world so excellent you touched on before your gateway into physiotherapy was that sort of the inspiration for you to go down the physiotherapy path talk us through that uh yeah i just really enjoyed whenever i was at the physio which is a strange thing to say because i would get injured and then go down and then there'd be this person who knew kind of everything that was going on and i was like this is this is really cool like i really quite like this and then you always see on the you know, on the on the TV, you see the physios run onto the field and looking after the players, and uh, that that kind of 
just like triggered something I think in, in me from from a really young age it was like right physio I really like this there's a bit of knowledge sports you're not behind a desk um, and, and as a kid that's what you get exposed to so that's what you want to be excellent and it aligns with your obviously your sporting history knowing how to to rehab injured players as well as people that are experiencing the day-to-day injuries as well which yeah. we'll touch on later on what was the plan throughout your studies being a physio did you have ambitions to be a physio for a sporting club or did you want to open your own practice talk us through that yeah so i think like the goal is always for any probably like teenage male who wants to be a physio and now females too um, was to go into that sporting that team environment um, to do afl to do whatever it may be uh, but then as i've gotten older i've moved more away from that and i've seen like the the values and then the sacrifice required to do that and it's not about i don't want to sacrifice it's just that what i'd have to sacrifice to achieve that i'm probably not ready to do at this point in time um, but I'm happy to sacrifice in other ways, so more leading towards maybe like owning a business at one point. Excellent. Just because that's kind of where my interests lie as well. Yeah. Moving away from like the specific physio skills as well is going into more that business role. For sure. Yeah. Talk us through a little bit uh, with your studies. Did you ever find it quite challenging and did you ever start to second guess yourself as you were studying your physiotherapy course? Yeah, so I didn't get straight through into physio. So from high school, you needed to get into like direct entry to physio. Um, you needed 996 or something like that, like something quite high. Um, and my my score wasn't wasn't high enough to get into there. So initially really disappointed, but I had a bit of a backup plan to go into exercise science and then transfer out. That was kind of the method. You would get direct entry in, or you would get into like one of these exercise science degrees that were around um, around the state, and then you would transfer across to physio if you had the really good marks. So then. I I did that and got into the exercise science program and then completed a year and then it just kind of, I was just a really over school so I'd gone direct from year 12 into uni Um, so I ended up taking a year off, taking a gap year and going overseas. So I was overseas for like nine months I think, just travelling around so I did Camp America and travelled around and went over to Europe and had a great time, had a great year off where it was just like a little bit of work but mostly just for fun. Excellent, yeah. And then came back. Um, reset a little bit it's too late to transfer in um, did my second year of uni and it was a three year undergrad so by the time I finished my second year it's like well I'm not going to transfer out now like let's just finish this course and there were whispers that there was a postgraduate course starting in Victoria so at that stage there wasn't there wasn't a postgrad course in Victoria there was only the postgrad in Queensland at Griffith or the one in Sydney at Bond University so it would have to be finish the degree, then move to either Queensland or Sydney. I finished the degree. At the end of that exercise science degree, I actually got a job, a graduate position with Belgravia Leisure, which is a leisure management company. So they manage like big community facilities. So I, I got into that just through a graduate role. Um, so there was an application process and got in. And I was doing that, and I did that for about four years um, so a graduate role and then moved into a, an operations position. And I was doing that and getting some really good business experience and I didn't kind of foresee myself being interested in business but then completing it, I really was. But definitely at the time I was just doing it because it was a job and it was easy and I was 21, 22, 23 and I was like, well, I don't want to start my career or my life yet. Yep. I'll just keep doing this. And physio kind of fell by the wayside. 
but then I was about 24, um, and then that physio kind of goal like got brought up again, and it was like, hey, like if you really want to do this, like now's the time. So I looked at the application, and the, it was the second year intake for Melbourne Uni's postgraduate course, so their Doctor of Physiotherapy, which when they actually started, you would graduate, so you do your three years, and because they'd never had a graduating class, they didn't actually know if the first graduating class would graduate as qualified physiotherapists. <laughs> so everyone joining up was just taking a punt. It was like, all right, well, Melbourne Uni's doing it. We'll just join up, and then hopefully by the end, they've sorted it out, and you'll be a physio at the end. There you go. So I ended up getting into the second, which was probably a bit of a godsend because it, um, it thinned the herd a little bit. So I actually went through that application process and actually did my interview for that, I was in Germany at Oktoberfest. It was my friend's wedding two days before. Then we went to Oktoberfest the day after. And then I ended up doing a Skype interview and I was wearing like, it was like full newsreader style, like wearing a suit and a tie, but wearing like <laughs> pajamas on the bottom and just sitting at this desk. And I was like, just, so I had to leave Oktoberfest the day before at nine o'clock because I had this interview at six in the morning. Everyone gets home at like 10, everyone's blind like this big ruckus, there's like 15 people staying in this one house. And then I wake up at seven o'clock in the morning to do this interview, like blurry eyed and like, just like sort myself out, have the interview. It went really well, like I thought it went really well. And then that day was just a complete mess. It was like, right, everyone up, let's go. I've done this wedding, we're done. October is done. I've kept it under the wraps and then it just blew the lid off after that, which was really good. So they had to wait. I think I waited about a month or so. So I was still traveling around in Europe. And then I was, I remember I was in the Cinque Terre in Italy and the email came through and it was like, you've been accepted into the Doctorate of Physiotherapy at Melbourne Uni, congratulations. And I was there with my uh, girlfriend at the time and then my family, my mum and dad were there as well. So Excellent. that was a really good moment when I got to tell all three of them because they were like a really big connection, a really big push to get me in there. So. Great. And then I finished off the holiday, for an, went for another four months or so, and then came back and, and started. Unreal. So, and that was it, yeah. So there's definitely a few ups and downs in there, but getting through and getting into the course, and as soon as you started, I was like, this is, it. This is spot on. This is what I'm loving, yeah. Unreal. Fast forward to now, what are some of the most common injuries that you, you see as a physiotherapist? Yeah, so definitely a lot of backs. A lot of backs is the key. So it's... Um, like a lot of lower backs, a lot of acute lower backs, but then we also see the chronic stuff where it's a lot of people who haven't exercised for a while and they get back into it and it's just very, very stiff, sore, just like all, all of our joints, they're almost self-lubricating and it's just people come in and they need a bit of a grease up and a grease and tune and away they go. Um, sporting injuries and it's all seasonal as well. So we're, uh, I'm not sure when this is coming out, but cricket season wise, a lot of people come in, shoulders need a bit of a tune-up. And a lot of the time it is more that tune-up style. It's just, I haven't done this for a while and now I'm doing this. So you just overload that area. Yeah. Which is a lot of what a lot of injuries are, um, especially like lower limb injuries, shin splints, um, any knee aches, any hip problems, especially in like teenage kids. It's a lot of that is the overuse stuff where it's like they might have footy training and then they'll have like that crossover season where it's footies on, basketballs on, crickets on. And they're just like doing everything every night a week and just exhausted by the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. So those would be probably the main the main couple. 
Excellent. And I mentioned before, guys, that we're going to dive into a few few main injuries. So one of the injuries is an ACL. Then we're going to go through a rolled ankle and then kyphosis of the shoulders, which is rounding of the shoulders. So we'll start off with ACL injury, Simon. What is an ACL? So the ACL, I mean, an ACL injury, that's like the big Hollywood injury. That's the one that everyone hears about or like it's commonly referred to as like, oh, they've done their knee. That's basically the term that people will use. Aussie slang. Exactly right. <laughs> oh, he's done his knee out for the season. That's, that's the exact sentence. He's done his knees out for the season. Um, so the ACL is it's a ligament that sits um, in between your thigh bone and your shin bone. Um, and it sits directly, almost directly below your kneecap. Um, and it, it's, it forms a cross with another, another ligament called the PCL. So the ACL stands for the anterior cruciate ligament. And it runs um, from the, the back of your thigh bone to the front of your shin bone. And its job is to stop that anterior translation. So to stop your shin from slipping forward beyond your shin. Um, and then it also plays a role in stopping a little bit of rotation of that lower shank. Because if you grab your leg, you can actually get a little bit of a twist there. Um, and that's called tibial torsion. So that ACL plays a role in, in stopping that tibial torsion um, going from the, basically, if your left leg, you're going twisting from the left around to the right. So clockwise, it will stop that, that directional one. And then if we go the other way, that'll be the PCL, which will tend to stop that one there. Excellent. Um, yeah. And what happens when you tear an ACL? What sort of are some of the most common signs and symptoms that you'll see initially and then going forward? Yeah, so whenever an ACL is torn, people will often come in and they'll say, I was, I was playing sport and I tried to change direction. That's always the key, is a change of direction. Um, and they heard a pop or a click with immediate sharp pain, like debilitating pain and their knee will feel like it collapses underneath them and they likely will collapse. Um, there'll often be some short-term swelling, so the knee will puff right up. Um, puff right up, but that pain will actually subside. So it's the initial like tearing. It's imagine you have a piece of paper and you tear the paper halfway. Well, that initial is going to hurt and then every little tear after that's also going to hurt. But if you tear that whole piece of paper in half, well, you can't tear it twice. So then there's actually no more pain once all of that initial pain reaction subsides. So it's, yeah, it's not uncommon to be like it hurt initially, but now it feels fine. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt at all. Great, and I've had a few mates that have had some ACL injuries, and like you said before, there's the initial pain there, but then they find themselves a couple of weeks later, no pain, and they're able to perform some everyday tasks within reason. How does it impact your everyday life, and what movements can you or can't you do when you've torn an ACL? Yeah, so because the ACL does stop, it, it helps with the pivoting, and that's generally how people will tear it. They'll be running, changing direction, they'll pivot, um, and that pivoting will put too much load and it'll rip through the ACL. So what it will affect you in everyday life, if you can just kind of operate and anytime you twist. So like a lot of times you'll see people, they'll be walking and they'll, they'll just go to turn. They'll stand on one leg, they'll pivot to the left or the right, and their knee will just buckle underneath them. There'll be no pain, they'll just fall over because they've just got none of that support and their knee will be put into a compromised position where all of the muscles switch off and it just collapses underneath them. So I've had friends who have been, they'll get out of their car, close their door, bang, do that, and then they're down on the ground. Wow. Yeah. So my boss, actually, he, he did his ACL, and then he would be treating without an ACL, and he'd work on the patient, and then he'd go to turn to walk off, and he'd just stand up on the floor, and like, Justin, what, what's going on here, mate? <laughs> it's like, no, never mind, never mind, we'll be right, we'll be right. Wow. And up he gets, and 
Why are you going? It carries on. Yeah. And do you think that it's essential for people to get surgery once you've torn an ACL? Is it, is it something that's required or can you rehab it without surgery? So the biggest physio answer is always it depends because it, this is all these factors you have to consider. So they've, they've done the research and they've actually found that the osteoarthritic changes that occur in the knee, either pre-ACL repair or post, are actually really quite similar. So the long-term health of the knee is more based on how good you can rehab your knee regardless of surgery. Now the different arguments um, for either are, if you get the ACL repaired, you are guaranteed to ensure that stability, okay? So you'll put in a a graft, whatever the graft may be, it might be um, a graft from yourself, a hamstring or a quad, or they might use a Lars technique, which was really popular um, in the early 2000s. Uh, whatever they're using, so that will instantly shore up the stability of the knee. However, in Sweden, or in the Nordic countries, they've actually done a lot of research and they find that a large percentage of people actually are what they call copers. So there's copa and non-copa. So a copa can actually, once appropriately rehabbed, can function exactly the same without an ACL. So they, their hamstrings will become dominant force and they'll actually stabilize the shank of that knee. So they will prevent any collapse when there's pivoting and they'll stabilize the knee because you think if you're trying to get that anterior translation of the, the shank, so the tibia, um, well, if the hamstrings are engaged, that will just stop happening. Interesting. Yeah, so what they often do in um, Scandinavia, they will completely rehab you over a whole year, assess your ability to cope or not cope after the year, if you can't cope, then they'll use the graft and they'll go in and do the operation. If you can cope, they're fine. They'll let you go. However, they've got free healthcare, so people are able to go to the physio and do all of their rehab, and it's all paid for. So, yeah, different to here where we've absolutely where you have to make the decision, and then a lot and like the sporting mentality is often right. So in one year, I will know or I won't know. But if we do the operation, I'll just know. So it's like, right, I've got, I've got to get to the Olympics, I've got to get back to the game. I'm a football player who makes my livelihood is based on this. I don't have time to see if I'm a coper because if I take a year off and rehab and then we get to the end, I'm, not, I'm a non-coper, that's another year that we're going to have to do the full rehab again. Excellent. So oftentimes you would just get the surgery. Great. And my next question was about recovery time. So the standard recovery times for, let's say, a non-COBA who requires surgery. Yep. Is that about 12 months? Yeah, it's generally about 12 months. There, there used to be a hard and fast rule, and it was like, bang, 12 months, you go for it. They're moving away more to a bit of a more of a goals-based rehab where it's, right, let's move through the stages. And when you hit the milestones of one, you can move to the other, which is why someone like um, Tyson Goldsack can get back in six months just because he's a, a freak and just hit his milestones at every time. So he was able to progress through and get back to, um, get back to what, he, what he needed quicker. And then like Tony Liberatore got back in like something ridiculous. It was like three months or something, like just unheard of. Whereas other guys like Nick Natanui, he took 18 months and then still re-ruptured. So it doesn't, it's not necessarily time-based, but it is milestone-based. But as a rule, we generally say for the average punter, 12 months. 12 months, excellent. And during those 12 months, what sort of process would you do to manage an ACL post-operation? Yep, so we generally go through uh, five phases. Uh, so the first phase is like that subacute 
post-surgical phase where we're looking to re-establish the range of motion uh, because we're thinking you, you're putting in a really stiff graft and whenever we do surgery, we actually make things tighter than they need to be so we can then stretch them out. So initially, we're looking to establish our range of motion back and we're looking to get our quads activation. So basically, after an injury, the body will shut down that area and, and do what we call pain inhibition, where they'll down-regulate the messages sent through to those muscles. So we need to switch it all back on and establish those pathways again. So that's what we're looking for initially, is at getting our range of motion back and getting our swelling down, and then getting our activation back. Excellent. So they're kind of the three goals. Great. And once people have gone through those recovery phases, do you then tell them to go straight back into the same exercises they were doing, or is there a process for them to sort of build up the load through their legs through everyday activities? Yeah, so then that's when we begin our, our specific rehab that you would probably, that, that's kind of what you see on the TV. That's what you'll see like the AFL guys doing. Um, you'll go through, and it, it's always graded. So it's like taking someone who hasn't done any exercise because it's essentially what we're dealing with and building them up to a full squat. So we'll initially start with say, some mini squats as an example. Um, We'll start with some mini squats, some mini lunges, some mini double leg work, and then gradually progress our strength and our range of motion um, until we can run through full range of motion. In that phase two, that's where we're looking to get to like our squats, deadlifts. Uh, this is pre-running, so this is all, we're gonna not do any plyometric work. So it's all of those big compound lifts. We wanna get really good at those and get really heavy at those and get really, really strong. So that when we move to that third phase, which is more of a landing and plyometric phase, we've got a really big base behind us. Excellent. Yeah. Learning to walk before you can run, I guess. Exactly right. Exactly Great. right. Awesome. And for people, the everyday person that may not have any ACL injuries or any knee problems whatsoever, what are some exercises that they can do to strengthen the knee joint or to avoid an ACL injury? Is yeah. there anything that you can do? Yeah, definitely. So a big, a big factor with uh, any ACL injury is... Uh, and what we call a knee valgus movement. So that's where your knee, if you were to stand there and you go into like a little quarter squat and then move your knees to the, towards each other, that's uh, a valgus movement. And that puts the knee in a really poor position uh, and a really unstable position and puts a lot of strain on that ACL. And that's often when we find people will rupture. So if you look at, uh, I think like Nick Natanui when he did his second one, um, and then Bob Murphy also when he did his one, um, you see that change of direction, the knee comes into the middle and then there's a rupture. So theoretically, if we strengthen everything against that, we're gonna be okay. So that knee valgus movement, we get that from our glutes. So just getting a lot of glute strength and then a lot of single leg stability work. Excellent. And then building up our landing and then going from there. So even even exercises specifically, as simple as jumping just in the one spot, doing some repeated jumps, but making sure when we do land and absorb that load, and these aren't coming together, they're staying over the top of our toes. Cool. And then progressing that and then making that difficult, so then you would increase the height of the step that you're jumping off, um, and then you would go to single leg, and then you increase it for single leg, and then it comes into some specific change of direction stuff to get strong. Fantastic. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us, Simon. And do you think that someone that was rehabbing their ACL should go and see a professional or should manage it themselves? If you were Buddy Franklin and you tore your ACL, would you do it yourself or would you go and see someone? 
and that's generally that's actually the the thing that I will bring to most people. And I, I talk a lot about AFL because it's it's the most popular sport here. And it's just that that's basically it. If you were a professional athlete and your livelihood relied on that, would you go and see a professional to do that? In most answers, it's yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, you want to manage that within your capabilities, your budgetary uh, and physical capabilities. So working out a really strong plan with your physio about, hey, look, this is realistically how often I can come. What can we do now? How can we structure this? Because the structure is going to be a lot different. If I'm seeing someone twice a week, every week for six months, I will take them through specific exercises and do that all in session. But if someone's like, look, realistically, I can only afford to come once every fortnight for a little while and then once a month, how do we do it? It's like, okay, we're gonna do a lot about education and a lot about movement preparation. So it's like, right, when you're doing this, these are the things we need you to avoid, okay? And then we go through and we'll work through the technique for maybe squatting and it's like, right, now you're just gonna work on squatting. And it will generally be a little bit slower. and that's why guys like Tyson Goldsack, his job is to rehab. Like that's literally his job, is to rehab again on the field and he's back in six months. Most people have a full-time job, so yeah. they're not getting that time that they can allot to physio and to rehab. So then we have to map what you can commit to doing within to the grand scheme of things. So it's like, well, maybe you might be in 18 months, let's shoot for that instead because you'll move a bit slower okay. because you have less of that direct guidance. And that's where you come in. And that's where we come in, yeah. So I think we do a really good job. And if the patient is really honest with what they can commit to, well, then we can be really honest with what we can in turn give them and set them up for. Um, so the more that they can commit, the better it is. But like life's realistic. Life's not always about like, hey, I've got, I've got two kids. I want to run a marathon. Like, how much do I need? It's like, all right, well, let's get you back running. We don't need to do change of direction anything. So then we can just focus and make that our goal. So yeah. it's all about being as honest as you can with the practitioner that you have to allow them to give you the best plan. Great. And I think, it, like you mentioned before, every injury is always personalised and different recovery times, like you mentioned with the AFL players. Exactly. And, and it all goes into the work that the, the patient's doing outside of. Exactly right. Exactly right. It's just what, what are you realistically able to commit? Like, I'd like to go to the gym four days a week, but I definitely don't. And it's like, well, okay, well, I'll work with my trainer and he'll say, right, what can we do? Two yeah. nights a week? Right, this is what we can do with two nights a week. And then we work from there. Great, awesome. Yeah. You did touch on before about the the way you're moving your knees into strength and the ACL joints. I was reading a, an article the other day about a functional movement specialist who was saying, who was indirectly having a goal, bodybuilders who, who focus he- on lifting heavy squats and they're only adapting their legs to move in those certain patterns, yep. not having a go at any bodybuilders. This is just what I'm reading, by the way, guys. <laughs> and he was saying that if you move their knees three centimetres in, that's, that strength suddenly goes away. So it's, yeah. he was sort of promoting a functional more method and that's what you're trying to do more, a functional method for your for ACL joints there, right? Yeah, so I, and I think rehab definitely goes to, like in that, in that second phase, we need to get muscle on the bone because... It doesn't matter if you're, I, I would, and this is probably what goes against this more functional rehab style, it's that if there's a bodybuilder and you move his legs three centimetres in and then all this strength goes away, I dare say that in three weeks' time and he's taught his enormous quads to do the work three centimetres valgus, he's going to be a lot stronger than a really skinny guy that can do it in 
three centimeters valgus and out as well. Yeah. So it's about getting muscle on the bone, making those muscles as big and as big and as strong as they can, so that then we can cha- that we can train the movement pattern later on. Does that make sense? Yeah, so like definitely. When we move to three and four, that's when we move to running, change of direction, jumping, landing, and that's when we use the muscles and the activation that we've trained earlier in a really safe space we train them to do the right thing we train them to do what we need them to do after that excellent so i think it's always a bit of a bit of a combination sometimes i, I think you go down the rabbit hole on the internet and you'll find Definitely. someone who's like right do this and only this and you're like, oh, sure. right. <laughs> like what about this like, what about this so that, it's kind of take a bit from everywhere great that's why everyone yells at each other in the fitness industry exactly you know right like yeah. if you all work together like you're all right yeah <laughs> Just like work together a little bit more. Definitely. That, that'll work a bit better. I couldn't agree more. Last question on ACLs. How do, you yeah. th- how do the uh, surrounding muscles get affected by an ACL injury? Yeah, so when I mentioned before, you get this um, pain inhibition where the body down-regulates what happens. And you'll notice that after a surgery, like it's a pretty traumatic event. There's kind of drill holes that they put in there. and um, So what happens? The muscles just turn to jelly. They all switch off. So you'll switch off at the quads, you'll switch off at the glutes, your calf, and then naturally you'll get the atrophy that goes with that. So all of the muscles will shrink. Then theoretically, you've got less muscle, you've got less strength. So that's why you need to get the activation, turn those muscles on, and then really train them and increase the size of those muscles so that then you can then teach it what to do. Because you just lose all of the patterning. So. Excellent. And when they go to sleep, then moving in everyday patterns, they obviously won't activate as well as they used to, will they? Exactly right. Exactly right. Fantastic. Thanks for diving into an ACL injury. I'm sure you covered all of the points there. Really appreciate it. Uh, Onto a rolled ankle. These are something that a lot of sports people and everyday people do experience. Mm. What happens when the ankle rolls? I understand that it can roll both ways. Talk us through that. Yeah, so it can roll both ways. Usually, a majority of the ankle sprains are taking the inside of your foot more in, so that's called an eversion, or no, an inversion sprain, sorry. Eversion? In, no, eversion sprain, sorry. <laughs> it's early morning. Uh, so that's an eversion sprain where you're, you'll basically land on the outside of your foot and then your body will go down hard and you'll feel the pain on the outside of your foot. And then an inversion sprain is less common uh, and that's where you land on the inside of your foot and go further in. Now that's less common because you've got a thick, it's, it's called a deltoid ligament, so it's a really thick three-banded ligament on the inside of your foot and it really secures you there. So that's why you'll find when you walk, your foot will collapse a little bit, but it won't go all the way um, or to the inside. So that's why most of the time we'll do that, that outside sprain. Um, and then when we land there, we just basically, all of the ligaments which join bone to bone, naturally get further apart from each other and that's when they'll strain, stress, tear, and you'll get all of the subsequent bruising, swelling, pain that goes with it all. Awesome. And depending on the severity of the rolled ankle, what's the recovery time both minor and for major worst case scenario? Yes, so major ones can be fracture and dislocation. So that can be fracture of the, of the ankle joint. So that'll be, say, the bones in the foot, and the bones in the leg, they can both break or you can break the ones in the leg and then the whole foot kind of comes out of that socket. That's the worst, that requires some plates to put it all back in place, boots, plaster, the whole nine yards. And with the ankle, they're often really, really quite complicated and they'll be taking, if you're dislocating, longer than, longer than six months. 
yeah, around that kind of six months, maybe a little bit over to get really back to where you were. Um, and then if we step down the ladder from there, you've got like a ligament rupture. Um, so the ligaments are not self-regenerating. Um, they will if they're a partial tear, but if you completely rupture a ligament, that's it, that's done. Um, and sometimes they're actually better if you fully rupture a ligament because it doesn't hurt anymore. It goes back to that kind of paper theory that I mentioned before yeah. where you tear the whole thing and it, well, that's it, it's done. So from there, the, the really important thing is to rehab your ankle, deal with the swelling, deal with the pain, but then rehab it so that it doesn't happen again because you've just lost one of your stabilizers in there. So any ankle injury like that, you're looking at like a three month to three months to six month recovery to get that really appropriate rehab into it, to reteach your muscle what to do. Teach your foot how to be stable again, because you've obviously sprained it for a reason. So let's let's teach it to be really stable. Excellent. Then from in there you've got your regular strains, muscle strains, ligament strains, um, some bone bruising usually occurs, which takes kind of eight weeks or so to, to really settle. Um, and there, they're just a few extra complications that you have to deal with. Excellent. And how would you treat the more common uh, rolled ankle? Yeah. So immediately after it happens, what we want to do, we want to limit the swelling. Oftentimes, swelling is the cause of your pain and your loss of function. So if we can mitigate that swelling, we're going to do a lot better. So doing that with compression and elevation, that's going to be your key. And then using your ice for the pain. So ice is really, it has really limited effects on inflammation has big effects on pain. So it's more just, okay, I need to tolerate this. Great. Okay. So yeah, compression is gonna be good for that um, swelling. Elevation is good for the swelling. And when you touched on icing before, I know uh, there's a lot of yelling when it comes to icing and yeah. ice baths and things like that. Yeah. How long should we ice for? Uh, I know commonly 20 yeah. minutes on, 20 minutes off. Is yeah. the is the diagnosis, would you agree? Yeah, that's basically what I'll do. I'll just go ice for 20 minutes. As I said, I'm just using it more as a pain thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you can do it as much as you like as much as you can tolerate, don't burn the skin, uh, make sure you have a towel over the top of it. But as a pain thing, if you're in pain, go for it. Great. I've got no qualms for doing that. Excellent. And talk us through some of the rehab factors for you when you're treating a rolled ankle. Yep, so it will often, often our rehab will work really similarly in that we'll wanna, re, we wanna repair the range. So often when they're swelling, pain, you'll have a reduced range. So without that range of motion, you, you don't have the function. So we want to get your range of motion back. Um, then we want to switch all the muscles back on and get it all active again. So we'll be doing some really light, um, some light mobility stuff. So have your foot off the ground and just writing the alphabet. That's generally the first exercise is because that will do two things. Gets the range back and gets the, gets the muscles working again. Excellent. So we'll start with that and then we'll move to more of a functional stuff. So getting it stable, getting the calf strong, then returning you to sport, getting you running, then getting you to change direction. Excellent, and you touched on the calf before, that would be one of the surrounding muscles that obviously does get heavily impacted yeah. from the ankle joint not moving, because that's not functioning as well as it should. Yes. How does the other surrounding muscles, like your quads, your glutes, affect that, your hamstrings? Yeah, so a lot of the times, whenever we roll an ankle, I mean, that's what we walk on. We walk on our foot, which is involved in the ankle, and then there'll be a lot of secondary complications with that, sore knees, hips, because you're limping, so when you're limping, you're altering where the load's going through. So from there, you might load up your quad, you get a bit of quad fatigue, you get a bit of hamstring fatigue, your glutes can switch off sometimes just because you're walking in a way that doesn't require them because you're avoiding to load the calf, which actually also loads the glute. So it's just about getting you, returning your function so that then you can train those muscles 
the way they're supposed to be used. Excellent. That makes a lot of sense. And what are some exercises to strengthen and avoid the rolled ankle? Yeah, so big movements, squats, deadlifts, split squats, they're probably the three that I tend to go with. Um, we want to start with our squats first, deadlifts first, and then go to our split squat, which then isolates more of that control in one leg. Um, and now there's a bit more of a movement more recently to using um, actually training the ankle in that provocative position. So almost going and putting the outside of your foot on the ground and doing even like some little walks. This is when it's all pain-free. So you're actually training it in the zone that would usually cause an injury, but we wanna build up your body's resilience there. So that when you go in there, when you're playing sport and you enter that zone, your body's like, oh, we've done this before. We're strong, we know what to do, we can handle it. And then it bounces back out again. Interesting, so that's yeah. walking on the outside of your foot there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's moving along, whether or not it works. Time will tell. Like all things physio, people tend to try them out and then in five years' time, people go, oh, that didn't work. Definitely. Well, that did work. So. I guess it's important to, to touch on here not to try that one without consulting your physio. Correct. <laughs> Don't try that one at home. Correct. Awesome. Thanks for touching on the rolled ankles there, Simon. You, you dove into a lot of detail there and I think, I think you covered all the bases. One of the more common injuries, well, not so much injuries, it's more of a, a, a pattern that we sort of adapt to is a kyphosis of the shoulders. That's where our shoulders round forward, causing some hunchbacks and stuff, I believe. And this can lead to a lot of injuries down the, down the track. Um, I know a lot of people that have had kyphosis of the shoulders and it's affect their hips because their pelvis becomes out of line and, and yep. so forth. So what, what is kyphosis of the shoulders? Yeah, so our, our spine's separated into uh, four sections. So we've got cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and then sacrococcygeal, it's kind of all down the bottom, doesn't really move. And there's some natural curves in the spine and it does that to support loading and support structure. So at the top through our thoracic, which is about from below your neck to the bottom of your ribs, uh, there's a natural bend backwards away from you and that's called a kyphosis. So what happens when people sit at a desk for a long time, study for a long time, just naturally, it's almost like that traditional, you look at like an old lady walking um, they're hyperkyphotic, so their body has naturally rounded over because we live in this anterior life where everything's in front of us. You shorten your muscles through your shoulders, so through your pecs, and it will bring your shoulders around, and that will then lead to that hyperkyphosis, which they can then it just adjust the symmetry between where your head sits. Because if you imagine your spine is curved, and then you stick your head on top of that, but then you need to look up. Well, if you kyphotic and your face is looking down every muscle in the back of your neck shortens which forces you to look up and then you get very tight there you get headaches there you get pain into the shoulders and then the same thing happens at the bottom as well stiff there yeah things are trying to compensate for this developed compensation basically excellent and for someone that's at home that may be interested to see that they have kyphosis of the shoulders what's a quick test that they can do by looking in the mirror to, to judge that yeah so it's just if you've ever been told to sit up straight, you've probably got hypokyphosis in that. that that's always the, the posture that your parents never wanted you to have because you'd be sitting there with a little hunchback. So, um, yeah, if you've ever been told that, that's probably the way they go. <laughs> if you're sitting there and you're like, and if you're sitting there listening to this and you sit up straight, you're probably a bit kyphotic, probably a bit too much. Excellent. And what are some treatment patterns for you for someone with kyphosis of the shoulders? Yeah, so oftentimes this is a bit more of a chronic um, a chronic build-up where it's developed over time 
um, and it's more of a pattern of movement. So what we need to do, we need to change it. And if things slowly come on, we need to slowly change them. So all I get people to start doing is just once an hour, whatever they're doing, just do a posture check. Just put their hands on their belly button, hands on their lower back. Okay, do they feel like they're level? Can I straighten this up? And then you'll get them to sit up, get that nice curve through their lumbar, then move up to their chest, one on the middle, one on the back, and just align that on top. So you'll have that straight, have your arms hang directly below you, so they're not in front of you, not behind you, and then have your chin tucked in so that you get a nice straight line between the top of your head and your bum, basically. So that's what I'll generally start with. Just doing that once an hour, that's all you have to do. Stay on bolt, stay on top of it, and slowly you'll start to change, and then from there, then we'll build some strength, build some stretches. Fantastic. Uh, that touches into my next question about how to strengthen and, and avoid the kyphosis of the shoulders, but I guess you've already touched on that, basically yeah. trying to strengthen our muscles and release the chest and shoulders, aren't we? Correct, exactly. So the, the debilitation comes from really tight pecs, not tight anterior delts. So if we're going to do any release or stretch work, that's actually where we want to stretch. And then the opposite or the antagonistic muscles of those, or agonistic muscles, are the lower trap. So that's what we want to strengthen because that's going to help pull you both upright and pull your shoulders back and down, which goes against that kyphosis. Awesome. So lots of like lots of seated row stuff I'll do. Um, lots of seated row, deadlifts again, like the, the key. If you can do those with a really good posture, you're going to be all right. But lots of seated row work, um, even like some straight arm lat pull down work I'll do as well, just even with some bands. Excellent. Yeah. And again, it's important to, to touch on here that I think you should be under the guidance of either a personal trainer or a physiotherapist when doing uh, some recovery for kyphosis of the shoulders as you could be making the matter worse by training some separate muscles. Correct. Awesome. Now, I just want to touch into some top tips on warming up and cooling down. Mm. Uh, this is especially in my industry and people at the gym, they go into, go into the gym and do their exercises straight away without warming their muscles up or priming them. What are the benefits of warming up and what are some main tips for muscles to focus on while warming up? Yeah, so the, I mean, the main benefit is that once you're warm, you'll actually find that your muscles are more extensible, so they're, they're more flexible. So when you are training, you want to train. You want to, if you're going to do a squat, you want to squat through the full range. But if you're not warmed up, if you're going there cold, if you're going there stiff, it's actually can be quite difficult to get through that full range. That's going to be, that's the primary benefit. You're going to be able to achieve the maximal range of motion and the maximal return for your money. Don't go in there and train in in half your range what's the point of that let's do the whole range so i mean and that's that's the primary thing there's an injury prevention component too um, warming those muscles up they're going to be less have a, a, a reduced propensity to tear strain anything like that which means it's going to save you a bit of time in the long run keep you training keep you on the field that'd be probably the two that i'd go with okay yeah yes it's also also important to touch on to warm up in the movement patterns you're going to be doing throughout your exercise so if you're right. Exercise is more dynamic, so you're moving a lot, like running or something. That warm-up, running, uh, building up through that range of motion there. Exactly. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Which also goes into, if you're going to be lifting weights, look, let's get the blood flowing with a bit of a cross-trainer or a bit of a run or a bike, whatever it may be. Have a, I'll go through a bit of a warm-up in a little bit. But, yeah, just warm up the body first, but then warm up on that specific movement. So if you're squatting, benching, don't go to your max first. Let's start with 50%, 60%, 
eighty percent, and then we're and then we're lifting, and then we'll be able to lift a little bit heavier as Slowly well. Build. Prepare not only the muscles but also that neural connectivity as well. Get the messages flowing through, so the body's like, okay, cool, squat. Yep, I remember squat. This is the pathway we're using. This is how we do it. You get more activation, and you'll get a better better result. Fantastic, and you exactly like you said, you'll find yourself getting a better result. Yeah. Awesome. What about cooling down, Simon? I know a lot of people will finish their class, go straight to the car, and then get on with their day. What happens when we don't cool down or stretch out our, our muscles where we've been training them? Yeah, well, it's just a big rebound effect. So the harder you work out, the harder the rebound is going to be. It's why people who run a marathon, they're completely cactus by the end of it. So it's really important just to get remove a bit of the waste products that build up. So even doing some self-massage, some doing some foam rolling after, some stick work, even for any like boot camp trainers or um, PTs, just do some light massage, like partner massage, have them on the floor, work in the calves, work in the hamstrings, work in the quads, and the people who are training with you will come out feeling much better and then be able to back up a session the next time around. Because it's all just about mobilizing and moving those waste products around the body. Great. That's the key. For me, as a trainer, I know I tried and errored with, with stretching at the end, back end of a session, and I found that a lot of people want to maximize their output for exercise. So I've removed the stretching yep. in the session, but encourage people to do it outside of the session as yeah. well. So if you are a trainer, I would recommend spending that extra five minutes after the session, if you're not pushed for time, to work with the with the clients and get them to understand what exercise they need to stretch. And, yeah, and, and that, that's the really hard part is because, as you say, people want to maximize their costs. So stretching to a lot of people, they, they're kind of like, oh, this hurts and I don't see the direct benefit which is why I think sometimes even massage can work. So even if you are a trainer, um, just spend the last five minutes of your session uh, just on the floor. You can do some self-massage. Just do some like quick reading, learn some really easy techniques. Um, do some extra training if that's what it requires. Um, doing some massage and setting yourself up for the next session. So chatting to your client, finding out what their goals, how are we, we're on track, what are we looking for, the next session. It just gives you that debrief time, which I think is really important because it not only debriefs the mind, but you can debrief and reset their body. And who doesn't love a massage? Like they're not going to yeah. lie there and go, you know what? I wish I was doing burpees right now <laughs> instead of lying here getting this recovery massage. <laughs> Definitely. Which is a, probably a bit of an easy way to sell it rather than, all right, let's we're going to stretch now. It's like, I don't want to stretch. <laughs> yeah. I want to do burpees. Awesome. I want a massage. That's a great point that you raised there, Simon. Similar to my job as a PT, the hour session can only progress you so far, but what the patient does in the other 23 hours is the most important. Yes. Do you prescribe any exercises for your patients to do at home as a physio? Yeah, I do. Every session, we'll try and go through some exercises. My big philosophy is I try to incorporate the exercises into their life. So depending what it is, if this is a person with a really achy back who's not a particularly active person, Telling them to go to the gym three times a week and get really strong, while appropriate and probably what they need, is not realistic. But getting them to lie on their bed when they wake up and do 10 back extensions or 10 like half push-ups, cobra poses, that's really realistic. And they'll come back in two or three days and be like, I feel great, I feel really good, like I can move a lot further. Okay, and then you're like, all right, well from there, now we're gonna roll you over onto your back and we're gonna do some activation work. We're gonna do some um, we're going to do some dead bugs or we're going to do some rolling or we're going to do something else and they come back and they're like, oh, I'm loving that, I love that too. So then they've got the mobilisation, they've got the stabilisation and then slowly incorporating exercise into their life and then when they get to a point where you can tell that 
they're, they're really dedicated and they're keen. They're like, they're on board. I see the benefits of this physical activity. That's when you can say, right, I want you to go for a session with this person. And that's where trainers are really important. And this is like, I tell all of my patients that the pathway I want to move them to, I want to look after them for the first two months, but then I want to transition them into exercise sessions, guided exercise sessions where they're getting educated answers. Because a lot of people, they go, they go exercise and like, I should exercise. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll go and do it. And then I won't get a result. I'll get injured. So I'm not going to enjoy it. But if I go, if I send someone to you and you're exercising, they're like, love it. Love chatting to Matt. That's great. I'm getting a result. That's great. I don't have to think. That's great. So these are the, so that's going to keep them. That's going to give them the hook. And then they do that for a period of time and until they're knowledgeable enough to do it themselves. Couldn't agree more. So it's just chip away. Definitely. Start small and then build from there. I love that approach you're doing. A pet hate of mine and I know of discussing with a lot of trainers that I, that I speak to are eight-week challenges and six-week challenges where people are coming from no movement or no exercise at all, going into five heavy sessions a week and not understanding the process that it takes to get from no movement to five sessions a week and how dedicated it is because that's on the extreme end of the spectrum. Would you agree? I love those sessions because they keep me in my job. So like that's where most of our people come from. It's like, I've just joined a five week challenge. We're up to week three, my body's rooted. Like, what do I do? It's like, okay, cool, let's do this. And then that's when you'll go through and have to hash them out again. Definitely, it's very pleasing to see that you're correcting them on the, on the yeah. right path after that, <laughs> after the misguided Sometimes. information. <laughs> yeah. Love it, mate. You touched on before about self-education. I know we've touched on before during the podcast about different research articles that we've yep. come, in, come across. With the new research developing every day for all fields under the health umbrella, mm. how important is self-education and finding credible sources as a fitness professional or a, or a health professional? Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. It's such a changing world all the time, which is sometimes can be frustrating because things that you've done have worked clinically, but then scientifically they're like no it doesn't work and you're like but i've kind of seen this work in real life so it's really hard but it's just hard to it's like anything just keep chipping away you don't have to you know we don't have to go to the moon tomorrow but let's just start working on it slowly slowly and just kind of maintaining a bit of that upkeep like i'm a big podcast guy so driving in the car listen to some credible podcasts and then you know you get 10 minutes of knowledge from there and you're like all right i'm going to try that see how it goes Fantastic. Yeah. What's your go-to podcast at the moment, Simon? Uh, there's a British Journal of Sports Medicine podcast. It's really good. It's really, um, really insightful. Uh, there's actually a Physio Edge podcast. It's really good too, where um, he'll get a he'll get one person. They'll just discuss one topic. So he'll get an ACL specialist, and they'll just riff for an hour and a half on ACLs, which would be really boring to most people, but. To me, I'm like, yeah, I, I like this. This is really interesting. Good for you as a physiotherapist. To Absolutely. Absolutely. It just helps me keep, keep abreast of what, what's out there. Excellent. And I guess with the growing age of social media, mm. you utilise it to your advantage. There's so many Instagram pages and Facebook pages that just post uh, information on, on different things. So utilise that to your advantage. Guys. I've got a few um, for, for the punters. There's actually, I'm just getting my phone out now. There's... One set of guys who they, they do a really good job of like all of this self-education um, and it's called Move You. So they're like a San Diego-based group and they, um, yeah, basically they're, well, I don't know if I can swear, but their first line on the Instagram page is fix your shit. <laughs> Entertaining and educational training videos. And they just go through and they just correct movement patterns and they say, hey, you walk around like this, do this to correct it. Basically, 
the visual interpretation of what we've discussed here today. Fantastic. They're really, really good. I'll have that in the show notes for you guys. Simon, what is your main message that you're trying to spread through your job and through your everyday life? That movement is fantastic. Movement and strength training is really, really good and will do great things and allow you to do great things with your life. Fantastic. Um, that, that would be it. We're designed to move, so... Exactly, let's do it? it. Let's do it. And the being a little bit sore is okay. That's actually <laughs> the other thing. Definitely. It's, it's actually okay. Definitely. But come check in and I'll tell you if it is okay. Love it. Simon, thank you so much for your time today, mate. You are a wealth of knowledge and I know that a lot of my listeners would have gained an insight into either ACL injuries, rolled ankle or kyphosis of the shoulders and something they can adapt to their everyday life. Where can we reach you, whether it's social media or your practice? Yeah, so I'm at uh, Physio Health in Essendon. Um, so there's actually five physio health practices. There's one, uh, Mount Waverley, Q, Essendon, Williamstown and Footscray. Um, so, and that's where I've got a lot of my information from. I'm based at the Essendon one. And then uh, my socials, they're really just boring. They're just pictures of me and <laughs> dogs and stuff. So there's not, not much physio stuff on there, unfortunately. Cool. Well, I'll have this in the show notes for you guys and anyone wanting to pop in and say g'day to Simon or get a treatment by him, I know definitely will help you to lead a better lifestyle. So Simon, thank you so much, mate. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, guys. And that's this week's dose of Euphoria. Connect with myself and the Euphoria Health community on Instagram or Facebook at Euphoria Health. Through these channels, you'll find cool workouts, plant-based recipes, and daily challenges. Until next time, guys, I'm your host, Matt Zapala, and remember, don't settle for anything less than euphoria.